My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Today's episode of Weird Work is sponsored by the folks over at HubSpot Academy. They help make it possible for you to not only pursue your passions, but to make them stick. HubSpot Academy provides short lessons and entire courses on everything from blogging to user experience to inbound marketing sales and even Facebook marketing. Now, if you're starting out in a new career, you don't have a lot of ducats. I get it. Dollars are at a premium. Well, the best part of all these lessons, they are free. That's right. Sign up for HubSpot Academy now at HubSpot.com slash weird. That's HubSpot.com slash weird and get your free lessons and courses now do it up i don't get a kickback but i know it'll help you break out of the nine to five and if you hit it big let me know i'll take a modest 10 percent cut okay enough of me let's get to the show if you've wanted yet feared to do work that is weird this is the show you just need to hear i take some selfies most times they're with my new dog little sebastian He's the eye candy, but I bring the opposable thumbs. And there's a good chance your own Instagram feed is littered with these types of self-portrait style images. The selfie was popularized in 2011, and it's estimated that collectively, we take around 93 million selfies each day. But what might appear to many of us as throwaway culture was seen much differently by Tommy Hunton. He saw selfies as a modern form of art. So, he opened the first Museum of Selfies, an experiential shrine to the forward-facing photo. I'm Sam Balter, and this is Weird Work. Now let's listen to them speak About their jobs, which are quite unique Weird Work There's... Ellen DeGeneres star-studded Oscar selfie. There's Justin Timberlake at the Super Bowl with that kid. There's every Kim Kardashian and Kylie Jenner uh, type of selfie photo. There's been a lot of famous selfies over the last few years. What's your favorite? I think the Oscar one is the most interesting by far. Uh, It's got a lot of people. And what's interesting is that there is a little known fact about how uh, copyright is assigned to people that take the photos. It's whoever hits the button. So technically, Bradley Cooper is the holder of that copyright for that photo. Really? So it's not Ellen's photo. It's actually Bradley's photo. I'm sure he might have assigned all rights to her, and they probably don't really care at this point. But yeah, it's funny. Whoever clicks the button is the one that kind of gets the assignment of copyright. That's okay. We're already starting off with very fun facts about selfies I didn't know. So you run the Museum of Selfies. I am the co-founder, yes. Let's say I walk through the door. What am I going to see? 
you'll see the front desk and you'll see kind of the beginning of the exhibition, which has our, you know, very important artist statement. And I think you'll recognize off the bat that we are very tongue in cheek. Uh, we want to make the space bright and accessible and fun. I definitely have an issue with museums, which I love museums, but they have not really changed much in the past couple hundred years and, and haven't really embraced accessibility in terms of making it something that people feel equipped to be able to go through. A lot of times you see in museums these very highly contextualized and, and wordy, uh, verbose statements that, that are way, way, way too esoteric for most lay people to understand. And you shouldn't have to have a dissertation on the subject to be able to appreciate art. <laughs> so we make it immediately clear that when you walk in, our statement is bright and fun, and you get to immediately vote with the marble whether you love or hate selfies. Most people who walk into the museum, do they love or hate selfies? I would say most people love, but I think we kind of have a biased audience. But thankfully, some people are honest and say they hate. <laughs> and that's the goal, is that you don't see the results until the very end. And we kind of you see the jars filled with marbles, and the question we ask people is, would you change your vote now that you've kind of gone through the space? So when you first come in, yeah, you see the voting and then you get taken on kind of a tour of history where you get to see from cave drawings all the way back to, you know, 60,000 BCE, all the way through present day, sort of the context of art and technology and photography, kind of how they all had to converge for cell phones and, and selfies to become a thing. And then once you finish the history, you get taken into the exhibition space where you get these interactive exhibits that let you kind of craft stories and create your own images from these interesting types of selfies people take. We have one piece that's uh, last year in L.A., there was a pop-up exhibit called 14th Factory where someone taking a selfie ended up destroying about $200,000 worth of art by knocking over a pedestal that knocked over other pedestals like dominoes. And the security footage went viral. And it's... <laughs> It's really funny, and we wanted to create a piece that let you recreate that moment where you act like you can destroy something. So we have three statues that are the same statue in the same setting, and one is standing upright, one is falling over, and then one is broken on the ground. And so you can kind of tell your story, and we are expecting people to just do the simple, oh, I'm leaning against it, oh, it's falling over, oh, no, it's broken. But people have done some really sophisticated storytelling by having almost like a three-panel comic strip. Uh, we have a bathroom that is probably my favorite piece that when you walk in, you have uh, no reflection. And that's really fun. So where I would expect to see a mirror, what's there instead? It is a reflection of the room you're in, except you are not in it. Oh, so it's like a replica of the room I'm in on the other side, except it's just like a frame like a mirror. Completely. And the way we've built it is... <laughs> You don't walk, when you walk in, you've got to turn a corner. So you see out of the corner of your eye, oh, it's a bathroom. I don't really get it. And so your brain already has it set up that's a reflection there. And as soon as you turn, you know, turn the corner to stay the mirror in front, you don't see a reflection. And the reaction is pretty funny from people. They, they get weirded out. They kind of joke, oh, am I a vampire now? People, you know, don't realize it at first sometimes. It's just, it's really interesting how disconcerting it can be. And the way we've set it up where even I know it's going to happen, my brain still messes with me sometimes when I walk in that space. Is that the general fan favorite or is there a particular space that really stands out to people who come to the museum? People have responded to the weirdest pieces. And this is part of where we, the interactive exhibition comes into play is this is all based on data. You know, my co-creator and I are writers and game designers. And in that space, we're used to doing different versions of something. And so we are used to doing, you know, version one, version two by testing people and seeing what they think. 
and using the data to keep generating stuff. So we weren't quite sure what was going to happen because this is the first museum we've built like this. Huh. We wanted to create a space that was interactive in a way that we didn't necessarily dictate how to engage with the space. So in the bathroom, once you have an initial surprise, you can actually go to the other side of it through a secret door and, and take pictures where you are able to kind of play around with the space. And what's been amazing is watching how people create these interesting pieces of art on their own where you have people playing around with the reflection thing. We've had some twins do some crazy stuff where they just sit there and make fun of people because <laughs> they sit there and act like they're frozen. Then one twin leaves, the other one stays there. And the people are like, what? <laughs> so watching how people engage with these pieces has been really interesting. And there really is no wrong way so long as you're not lighting the building on fire. So just to back it up a little bit, like why did you get into selfies in the first place? I mean, what's funny is that anyone that knows me, whenever they were found out I was involved in this, were like, what? You? Because I don't do social media. I deliberately disconnect from all of that. I am the last person <laughs> in the world to take a selfie. I noticed. I tried looking you up and you have like nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to find me and uh, deliberately so. Uh, but it's funny because, yeah, it's, it's people are like, why you? It stemmed from my co-creator and I. We, we're friends. We both are in the escape room community. And we wanted to always work on something together that was kind of artistic and and bright and fun and we kept dancing around these different ideas and we got pretty far with some of them but none of them seemed like they clicked and we noticed that people love taking photos especially of themselves and in cool art environments and then one day you know we just jokingly said well people just go to these places to take selfies anyway why not just jokingly call it the museum of selfies and we sort of sat there and we're like oh we 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 have something Okay, so so let's keep going with this. Is there a way to tell a story here? And can you actually make it interesting? Is there something you know compelling about this that's deeper and richer and surprising? And so I just kind of started spitballing with him going, well, let's rip apart the pieces this, this all organizes from. Well, what is a selfie? Okay, it's a photo- photograph. Well, okay, we can trace the history of photography, but it's more than just a photograph. It's a photograph of you clearly before photography existed there had to be ways to capture self-images well yeah rembrandt and van gogh and frida Kahlo, like all of them painted self-portraits so okay we have to talk about art as well and it just kind of exploded where we realized there are so many different things you can tug on and follow these threads through to their logical beginnings it's not just about vanity it's about capturing specific moments in time what are you hoping that people feel or come away with after being at the museum of selfies I think we want people to realize that it's easy to judge. Uh, I definitely do judge and I try not to, but I still do. And I think the idea that selfies are more than just this vain, vapid kind of thing that people do who are simply self-obsessed. The idea that this is actually a bigger reflection of what we are as people. And that that part of that, yes, some of we are self-obsessed. We do have to have a sense of ego. But it's more than that. It's that we are intrigued by the human form that's just an evolutionary quirk that we like looking at the form of other people and and that this phenomenon is more than just about that it's about capturing specific things we all have cameras in our pockets we can all be artists and photographers and play with things and that maybe we shouldn't take things so seriously sometimes i think you you've touched on this a little bit of talking about how selfies have kind of this perception of being like contentless, being like egocentric, just kind of be like not, nothing is there. Why do you think that people feel this way? 
I think it's because there is definitely a downside to screen culture. And I think it's a bigger reflection of people that live live through a screen. Don't be wrong. If I'm at a concert and someone is filming the concert, I, in my head, I'm going, when are you really going to watch that? You're sitting in awful seats <laughs> and you're staring at this through a screen. It annoys the hell out of me. And I would love to take their phone and throw it across the, the theater. Yeah. But I, I think those people that live life through a screen that are screen obsessed are kind of the same part of the idea of living life through a screen or living life looking through a mirror. And anything like that can drive anyone insane. I think that's kind of what it's come to represent. And selfie culture sort of has this ambassador of the Kardashians. And, you know, do I have respect for that family? Not really. Uh, but <laughs> the one thing I will say is that they were able to kind of make an empire out of almost nothing. And the idea of taking these photos and making that this giant you know, cultural thing. I think it also is a reflection of who we are as people. The fact that people idolize her for having pretty much no discernible talent besides being able to look pretty in a photo that she can snap herself. Have you always worked in room design and creating these types of physical experiential things? I haven't. And that's kind of a funny thing. So I came to LA for screenwriting, but then I just fell into that entertainment industry trap and got very disillusioned with it. So I, in my head, I'd always said that I would try to find a day job that was also entertainment so I could have kind of like a double you know, way in, that I could use my day job to help establish myself or learn the industry and get paid for it. And so I ended up stumbling my way into Disney, which oh. felt like a really great idea. And then just kind of got grew disillusioned with the company. Um, you know, it, it's a giant conglomerate and obviously they're very successful. And I got stuck in kind of a PR uh, new media department that was a little bit frustrating because I felt like I had a golden pair of handcuffs. <laughs> was it Was it like, I would assume working at Disney would be like working at a giant fancy corporation. Um, it's not fancy. It feels like any Dilbert cartoon with cubicles and you just happen to have <laughs> Disney-themed art on the walls, perhaps. And how long were you working at Disney? Way too long. I was there for eight years. And I kind of got <laughs> trapped because on one end, I was writing with my writing partner uh, about... A year or two after I got to LA, I met with a writing partner that people connected me with and we got along super well and we decided to just keep working together. So we got reps, we got an agent and a manager and tried to do the whole writing thing. And we got some, you know, very, very modest levels of success in terms of meeting with people and getting assignments, but nothing clicked. And because so much of that game is social and I thought I was just broken and really awful at the social game, which I am. I'm very awkward. But I also <laughs> realized that I just didn't care for a lot of the people in entertainment. A lot of it is very status-seeking. And for me, I want to meet with people that are passionate and love this. And what surprised me is that a lot of people in entertainment don't really like movies. They just care more about the status of, of what they're doing as opposed to the actual quality of it. So this thing that turned into like eight years of working there, and it sounds like it felt kind of empty in some ways. It, it was because I think my, my fear was I was I was doing the exact thing I was afraid of, which is getting disillusioned and frustrated, which, you know, to anyone, you're kind of just like powering through and it's like running into a brick wall over and over again, expecting the brick wall is going to move. And I got very stuck in both like my day job and then afterwards I meet up with my writing partner and we go and write on stuff. And he was in the same boat that I was. We were both just really, because he was a Paramount, I was at Disney. And we were both just really frustrated with everything. Was it just like, I can't take this shit anymore? Oh my God, no, it was getting fired. It was, it was kind of a culmination <laughs> of all of that. It was, it was, I was so frustrated at my day job and, and I was miserable. And the, the difficulty was I just didn't care anymore. And there was a point when I made a mistake and did not care to correct it. And I'm just like, ugh, 
I could go in and say, hey, guys, sorry, I screwed up. Or I could just lie and say I didn't do it. And I lied and said I didn't do it. And they'd brought in this real like tough reformer to really reinvigorate the network. And I think they could sense I was done just emotionally and physically. And so when they fired me, I was like, okay. And what was funny is I was there for eight years. And the weirdest part to me was getting fired is really strange. Just it's it's a jarring kind of reality because that had been my world for eight years. It was super surreal. But then after about a week, I didn't care. And I would drive by that building and I would, I would look at it and I'd be like, it felt like I'd been there six months. And that to me was a terrifying realization because I'm like, holy shit, eight years got condensed into six months. And if that's the case, that meant I did very little and I got to get my shit together because I cannot let that happen again. I did not come out here to be in a cubicle farm in a political environment where some people love and thrive in that place. I did not. And it was really scary for me. And there was a certain weird moment when I first experienced immersive theater in escape rooms that I was like, oh my God, this is the passion that I've been missing for so long. And what I loved was when I began to reach out to the people in the space, it's like, these are my people. These are the ones that I wish I could have connected mm. with, you know, from the beginning. And so my, my head just exploded at the possibilities and I just <laughs> dove right in. And that really reinvigorated my soul. And I'm like, well, I got one shot now. I am not getting any younger and I got a one shot to make this crazy ass career, whatever I'm going to do work. And I remember sitting there with Don, uh, my business partner and saying like, okay, you know what? I came out here to be crazy and to do crazy shit. And this is it. I'm going to do it. So <laughs> I'm going to go until I am literally homeless living in a barrel before I give up. What advice would you give for people who have that feeling who are, struggling with their own jobs and want to find a way to break out of that nine to five. Change is terrifying. And the only reason I changed was because I physically had to. I was I was forced off a ledge. And that's the one thing I would say for anyone is plan and, and always have a way out. I had these weird illusions that maybe someday I would like leave, but it was never being planned for actively. And so I would have planned better. I would have saved money because that was the one thing. I was paid well and I wasted all of my money on bullshit and meaningless stuff. And I would have saved better and had a, had a game plan. And the one thing I always told myself when I was younger was putting myself out of my comfort zone, always being ready to do crazy things or, or and not crazy like running in front of a car, but talking to someone that you're <laughs> quote unquote not supposed to talk to, you know, whether it be talking to a girl at a crush on or a person who would be a good business contact reaching out to people and just doing things that made me nervous, but were good for growing. And I realized I had not done that in a long, long time. So setting goals and actually keeping them and realizing that it's much better to be scared and do things that make you nervous than to be complacent. And I grew really, really complacent. So you leave Disney and you create the stash house. How would you describe that space? We'd been working on it for a while, and the way it worked was Don and I said, okay, we want to make an escape room, but we want to do something really different and bring our sensibilities to it. We want to bring storytelling to it. We want to bring immersion to it that feels different. Most escape rooms started out with literally, here's a room, here's some Sudoku puzzles on the floor. You know, that's an escape room. But we wanted to bring something different, <laughs> and it, it kind of stemmed from what we wanted people to do. We wanted it to feel kind of underground and have a story to it. And one of the things we realized we wanted the final result to be was flushing drugs. It was a really weird ending that felt kind of dirty and forbidden without being icky. And it was this kind of weird environment thing that was like, okay, well, what if it's a drug stash house 
and you have to flush drugs at the end before the cops burst in. And we knew what that final moment would feel like. It would be adrenaline, you know, rush. You'd have the cop sirens and people beating on the door. And that was this really visceral thing. I'd say, oh, let's work backwards. So we look for a space, and Don found a space near where he lived that was just this crazy bananas location, this weird building that has these weird doorways to nowhere and stairwells that go up mysteriously from weird spots. And we found this space, and it was in really, really bad shape. But he saw the potential, and I remember walking in for the first time and going, oh my God, we can do some crazy stuff here. So we had to completely renovate it ourselves, and we wanted to make it feel like an apartment. And so, yeah, it's basically a skeezy apartment in the Koreatown neighborhood of L.A. that has a lot of hidden stuff in it, but it feels and looks like a regular apartment. I know where the story ends. Where does the story start out of curiosity? So we were playing around with what the story would be like, and we realized we wanted to build a character that um, felt kind of charismatic and real. So we kind of combined the mentality of like a Stringer Bell type from The Wire mixed with Machiavelli. And, and playing around with these, the ends justify the means, a character that is villainous, but also incredibly charismatic, that, you know, is a fun person to really hate. So we started crafting this backstory of this guy who ultimately, you know, learned from the art of war and who came from kind of a, a nothing background. And so the idea was, okay, well, let's keep pushing this immersion and let's make this person seem real. So we created a profile for Ray Jones. He's listed as our co-owner. And the premise is that this is Ray's old apartment and he uses it for business meetings, that he's now a successful like high-end drug dealer that is kind of an entrepreneur that has money laundering operations and he's looking to expand his uh, crew. And recently he's had to make some uh, cuts, if you will, from people that he believes were snitches. And so now he's looking for some motivated people to come in. So you show up at the space expecting a business meeting. But in reality, you find out he's hidden drugs in the apartment called the cops and this is your interview for him is you got to flush the drugs before the cops arrive. And if you pass, then you get invited to join his gang. I absolutely love this, this story. I think it's, it's such a funny idea. It's theater meeting an escape room, which I think is really, really interesting. We have some things I'm going to spoil only because, you know, this, I want you to see it. But the, we have no lobby. When people come into escape rooms, they expect there's a lobby, you sign a waiver, you watch some bullshit intro video, and then you go into the room. <laughs> and my favorite thing is when we come in, we deliberately play it up like we're kind of, we open the door. And we have a green light outside. It's a nondescript storefront. And it looks kind of sketchy, which is very intentional. And people, I open the door and I always ask, what are you here for? And like, oh, we're here for the escape room. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I act, I act like I'm going to shut the door. And they realize, oh, we're here for a meeting? I'm like, oh, who with? And they mentioned Ray. And I look around at them. I'm like, were you followed? They're like, no. And then I'll let them come in. And they sit down in these couches that look to be like a living room, waiting room area. I take all their phones and their keys and wallets. And some people get really nervous about that. We put them in a box. And then they sign a waiver. And on the waiver, on the clipboard, uh, we deliberately made the waiver two-sided. So you have to turn it over. And when you do, you see it an, an written in blood that says, don't trust Ray. And immediately <laughs> people get kind of anxious and and... What, what have we gotten ourselves into? The room is really dark. I do a really quick set of the rules. I kind of, you know, ham it up a little bit, being kind of weird and like creepy. And then I say, okay, I'm going to introduce you to Ray. And we play a video that's him kind of explaining the rules. And it's a, like a 60 second video. And he basically says, and to make things even more interesting, I already called the cops. You better get started. And the lights come up. 
And that's when they realize, oh shit, we're actually in the room. And when the lights come up, it's like a production. And they realize, oh my God, the apartment is the escape room. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> One of the things that I'm really curious about is, like, you have spent so much time designing and creating these spaces and experiences. And you've seen so many people kind of go through all of these crazy experiences that you've created. But what I'm wondering is, like, what have you learned about yourself from designing these spaces and experiences? Jumping into designing stuff without knowing what you're doing is the equivalent of eating food and saying you're a chef. <laughs> Passively consuming something does not make you a creator of it. The idea of really good design is meant to be invisible because it's meant to not draw attention to itself. Great architecture, great film scores, a lot of great things are meant to basically blend together seamlessly. And if it calls attention to itself, it's often missing the function of what it's supposed to do. So good design is meant to be deceptively simple. And there's an Antoine Saint-Exupéry quote that I love, which is, an artist has achieved perfection, not when there's nothing left to add, but nothing left to take away. And so for me, the idea of approaching design, I've had to learn a lot. But I realize it all stems from me and the experiences I have. So all I can do is point to moments in my life when I felt surprised or delighted. And it's almost like deconstructing why those moments worked. And it really is learning about human psychology and the way people function. And it was because I think I like taking people on these journeys and making people experience these emotional highs. And I think the realization came about when we were building Stash House and we were doing a lot of testing and realizing that, okay, if we tweak this a little way, people might get excited over here or we put a little sound effect here, you know, these little moments. And I realized, oh my God, we are drug dealers. We are dealing in <laughs> dopamine and adrenaline. But every experience you have, people walk out feeling this emotional high and this buzz and you realize you are drug dealers. And that was probably the weirdest relation I've had is that I, I'm a digital drug dealer. <laughs> Out of the beautiful quotes about, you know, uh, reduction of art, about so much about learning about yourself and wanting to create these experiences, I really didn't think the end was going to be, I've learned I'm basically a drug dealer of sorts. I mean, that's the idea is that you're, <laughs> you're dealing in making people have these adventures and you have to know how the brain functions. I'm not saying that it should just be this weird generated thing that gives you a high, like having a story and being able to tell a story that's connected is really important. But you have to realize the story is constructed the exact same way, where it has these emotional you know, climaxes and plateaus that have to rise and fall to really build these moments. 
And I think that's the thing is I, I love doing these things where people go on this emotional journey along the way and they don't realize it fully. There's a thing called cognitive dissonance where people are really lousy at explaining why they do what they do. In designing, you want to basically, you're, you're leaving breadcrumbs and you want people to follow your breadcrumbs, but you want people to feel like they're the ones discovering them and that, not that you laid them out, but you're the ones making these discoveries organically. And it's letting people feel smart and going on these journeys. And so there's so many reasons why people do this. But for me, I do it because I enjoy people walking out and having these moments of excitement. Because I do. I love having these moments. And I want to go through great experiences. So where can people check out both the Museum of Selfies and the Stash House? So we're both in Los Angeles. Uh, Stash House has a very complicated website. The real website is Stash House, but the period is before the SE. So it's stashhow.se. But if you go to Stash House LA or just Google Stash House Escape Room, that pops up. The museum itself is in Glendale. It's going to run through the end of the summer. It's it's cool because who would have thought that two years after I was fired from one of the biggest companies on the planet that I would be doing exactly what I wanted to do, you know, uh, having to completely reinvent my, my career, but now I'm doing it. And one quick thing to you that's funny is who would have ever thought that you would be interviewing people about weird work? That's almost like a meta episode in itself where your <laughs> weird job is interviewing people about their own weird jobs. I know. It's, I, I, every day I'm confused why I'm doing this <laughs> and I love it and it's fantastic. This, is, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. This week's episode was produced by Matthew Brown. Additional recording help was from Annie Chelsea. You can check out Tommy's Museum of Selfies or his escape room, The Stash House, next time you're in L.A. And if you do, snap a photo and tag us on Twitter or Facebook, at Weird Work. I'll live vicariously through you. I'm Sam Balter, and stay weird, you fame monsters. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.